The facts about Jesus lead us to faith in Jesus so that we may have an eternal loving relationship with the Lord. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John. Today we open, hopefully, Lord willing, a six-month or so study in the Gospel of John. The Hebrew uh, name John, Yohanan, uh, which means Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. So those of you who have the name John, that's what it means. Um, John was probably the youngest of Christ's disciples. He might have been a late teenager when Jesus called him and his brother James to follow him. Uh, Jesus was 30 at that point in time. Uh, Interesting, John never identifies himself by name in his gospel. Anytime the name John shows up in the gospel of John, it's referring to John the Baptist. John the Apostle, who wrote the book, five separate occasions, he only refers to himself as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he never identifies himself apart from his Lord. It also tells us that he was intimately acquainted with Jesus and therefore his testimony is faithful and is an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus Christ. James and John, of course, were brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee. Their mother was Salome. Salome was probably the sister of Mary, the mother of our Lord. If that's true, then James and John were cousins, first cousins of Jesus. Uh, James and John worked together with their father and his servants in a very prosperous family fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, probably lived right there in the city of Capernaum on the lake. Uh, Both James and John initially began following John the Baptist, and then in Mark 1, they were called by Christ to follow me, which was a call to full-time service while they were mending their nets by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, James and John, interesting couple of guys. Uh, Christ called them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, literally. Uh, Luke 9, 54, uh, Jesus was passing through on the way to Jerusalem, and he was going through a Samaritan village, and they wouldn't welcome him. And James and John said, Lord, can we call down fire from heaven and just incinerate these people? You know, we're going to have barbecued Samaritan for dinner. They were just, I mean, they, they were just fire eaters, you know. Um, They also asked Jesus when he came in the kingdom if they could sit on the right and the left. You know, no no problem with pride here. They really liked positions of honor. Early in their relationship, these two brothers were characterized by a great deal of zeal, a great deal of self-interest, a great deal of ambition. As they matured, they became more and more like Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, John uh, especially, you will see as we go through this. Of all the disciples, Peter, James, and John were considered to be the inner three. On three different occasions, Christ was performing a miracle of various kinds, and he only allowed those three to be with him. And that happened on three occasions. The first time was when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Peter, James, and John were with him. The second one is when he revealed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. The only three that were allowed to be there were Peter, James, and John. And then lastly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately before his arrest and crucifixion, Peter, James, and John were there. Uh, John's older brother, James, was very likely the first apostle to be martyred for his faith in AD 44, about 10, 11 years after Christ's ascension. John, who we'll be studying today, was the last apostle to die. He probably died between 90 and 95 AD, so he outlived his brother by 50 years, five decades. He might have been the only apostle to die of natural causes. We're fairly certain, at least tradition tells us, the other 11 were martyred for their faith. And out of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, only John remained with Jesus at the foot of the cross. The rest of them had uh, fled at that point in time. Uh, When Christ, just before his, his death, he told John to take his mother Mary into his home and treat her like his mother. 
and I'm often intrigued thinking about the years they had together, the story she told John about Jesus. So John's knowledge base of his first cousin Jesus was vast, and therefore his testimony in this gospel is equally intimate and uh, very, very verifiable at that point in time. John was the first of the, of the disciples, one of the first, to see the empty tomb. He and Peter ran to the empty tomb. Uh, Peter got there first. John said he entered, and when he saw, he believed. Uh, he believed the eyewitness testimony, and he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, just as he said. A little later on, Galatians 2 refers to John as a pillar of the Jerusalem church, along with the Apostle James. We know we spent a number of decades ministering at the church of Ephesus that was founded by Paul. He wrote this gospel and the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, from the city of Ephesus. And during a period of persecution near the end of his life, we know he was exiled by the emperor Domitian to the uh, quarry island of Patmos, uh, where slaves quarried rocks. And that's where he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, of course, the last book of the Bible. Now, the Gospel of John, the one we're going to open today, was written about 25 to 30 years after the three synoptic Gospels. Um, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would cause the disciples to remember everything that he said. So we know that all four Gospels were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and even though the events had occurred a number of decades before, John has perfect recall of the details, as does Matthew, Mark, and Luke. God had promised, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would cause them to remember everything that he had said. Now, the word synoptic means to see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are three Gospels that are, have a lot in common. They're, they're distinct, but they're very overlapping on Christ's earthly ministry. John's Gospel, written about 30 years after theirs, John was undoubtedly aware of those three Gospels, and his gospel complements theirs. It's interesting that the gospel of John, 92% of this gospel, the content, is not found in the other gospels. 92% of the material in John is unique to him, which is intriguing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very descriptive. They focused on Christ's earthly ministry. They focused on what Jesus did on earth, what he said and what he did. John's gospel, written 30 years later, is more reflective. It doesn't so much focus on what Jesus did, it focuses on who Jesus is. So we have four Gospels, all of which view the life of Christ from a unique perspective. Um, those of you who watch football uh, occasionally will see a referee's call disputed, and when that call is disputed, they do what? They run a replay, a slow motion replay, and they have multiple camera angles on that play so you can see what's going on with the player and the ball from multiple angles. That's what the Gospels are. They are multiple camera angles on the life of Christ so you see the life of Christ from a complete uh, perspective. Matthew begins his Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. He goes all the way back to Abraham. He does that because his audience is Jewish. And he wrote to demonstrate to the Jewish audience that Jesus, in fact, was Messiah the King of Old Testament prophecy. And the key word in Matthew that you will hear over and over again is fulfilled, fulfilled. Jesus did this and a fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Matthew tells us what Jesus said. He was a tax gatherer, which means he knew shorthand. He was an IRS agent, and therefore he literally took dictation on much of Jesus' speeches. He literally wrote them down word for word. Mark, on the other hand, which is really the gospel of Peter, Mark and Peter work together, began his gospel with a baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Mark was writing to a Roman audience, and his gospel reads like the scenes of an action movie script. I mean, it's snapshot after snapshot, and they're all action set scenes in the gospel of Mark. He portrays Jesus as the perfect servant. And the key word in Mark is the word immediately. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus did that. You read the Gospel of Mark, and man, he's in a hurry. He's just cooking. You know, the script just goes ching, 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 just moves. And he tells us, Mark tells us what Jesus did. Matthew, what he said. Mark, what he did. Luke begins his Gospel with the Annunciations of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Luke's audience was Greek, and he was writing to emphasize the perfect humanity of Christ. 
The key word in Luke is son of man. He always describes Jesus as the son of man. And Jesus' favorite description of himself is son of man. And Luke has an enormous number of scenes where Jesus is interacting with humanity and healing people and compassion and care. So he tells us what Jesus felt. John begins his gospel before Genesis, before creation in eternity. John's gospel is the most theological of all the gospels. It highlights the deity and eternality of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his audience is the world. And the key word in John is believe. You will see the word believe over and over, 98 times. And John tells us who Jesus was, his identity. Now, the purpose of John's gospel is found near the end of the book, John 20, 30. He tells you why he wrote the book. He said, these, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here's the principle. The facts about Jesus lead us to faith in Jesus so that we may have an eternal loving relationship with the Lord. The facts about Jesus lead us to faith in Jesus so that we may have an eternal loving relationship with the Lord. So there's two main reasons John wrote the gospel. Number one, it was evangelistic. He's going to give us reasons to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And as I mentioned, the word believe appears 98 times. The purpose of this believing is that you might experience life in his name, abundant life, eternal life, through a relationship with God himself. Jesus himself said in John 10.10, I came that they, people, humans, might have what? Life and have it abundantly. Now, the word love appears in John's writings 80 times. John is known as the apostle of love. John mentions truth 25 times in this gospel, 20 times in his three epistles, so 45 times altogether. John MacArthur put all these together when he said, quote, John wants us to believe the truth so that we can enter into a relationship with love with the Lord, which is, I think, a good summary. So the first reason he wrote the, the gospel of John was evangelistic. The second one was apologetic. Apologetic in Greek is, means a defense. He wants to persuade his readers that Jesus was, in fact, the incarnate God-man, God who came to earth in the flesh as the Savior of the world. Now, John's not promoting blind faith. John is promoting faith based on evidence, faith based on verifiable, documentable, eyewitness facts. John organizes his gospel around seven signs. He literally organizes the entire structure around seven signs or proofs, we would call them miracles, that demonstrate Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Now, a sign typically points to something, right? When you read a sign, it's not there just to take up space. It's, it's telling us something. John's list of signs point to someone, the Lord Jesus Christ. The signs that Jesus did, that John records, point to his deity, point to his divine nature. The signs that John writes about are all actions that override the natural laws of the universe. They're actions that only God, the creator of the universe, could do. And here they are. The seven signs that John organizes his gospel around are, number one, changing the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. Number two, healing the court official's son in Capernaum. Three, healing the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida in Jerusalem. Four, feeding the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee. Five, walking on the water at the Sea of Galilee. Six, healing a man born blind in Jerusalem. And seven, raising Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. Now, these are the seven that he says, you want evidence that Jesus is God? I'm going to give you some signs to demonstrate that. Now, on the Sea of Galilee, after the resurrection, John records an eighth sign. Jesus miraculously arranged for a supernatural catch of fish after his resurrection. And the one sign, interesting, that John does not formally list as a proof, but it really it's the greatest of all the signs, is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So John begins his gospel with a prologue, 
about Jesus Christ. It's like the overture to an opera that contains all the major themes that the composer is going to develop in the work. It's like a table of contents, if you will. John gives us a summary here in these first few verses. It's a skeleton, if you will, that he's going to fill in throughout the gospel. Christianity is unique among all religions of the world because every other religion centers on either man-made speculation or a set of rules to follow. Christianity is unique. It centers solely on the person of Jesus. It is all about Jesus, only about Jesus. And if there is no Christ, there is no Christianity, obviously. It's not about rules. It's about a personal relationship with God. No other religion claims that God became man and came to earth. None. In every other religion, the worshipers have to sacrifice something valuable themselves to earn the favor of the God they worship. Only Christianity teaches that God's Son sacrificed Himself and died in the place of sinners in order to secure an eternal relationship with God. As we mentioned last week, John uses about 600 separate words in his gospel, which is about the average vocabulary of a 7-year-old or a 70-year-old. You know, we start to forget as we age. I said no. What else is there, right? However, with those 600 words, John reveals truth that is eternally profound. Leon Morris once said that John's gospel is shallow enough shallow enough for a child to wade, and deep enough for an elephant to swim. Let's open this, and I have to confess, uh, my poor little brain got exercised beyond, I could spend months on this, but we're going to, in the providence of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we pray that He will, and He will, open our minds to understand truths that are so profound that without Him we would not have a clue. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here's the principle. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is God. Now, you'll notice that Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 are intentionally parallel passages. Genesis 1-1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This emphasizes the majesty of God. This passage, in the beginning was the word, emphasizes the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the beginning, it refers to the beginning of the physical universe. This is the beginning of time-space continuum. It refers to being first in time, right? Before anything else began, before time began, the Word existed. Now, there's a very key word here. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The word was means to be, to be, and is the verb for existence. The Greek word, amy, E-I-M-I, Amy, it means continuous existence. It means no past, present, future. It means a continuous, present, eternal existence that transcends space and time. So it's not a tense. It doesn't mean there was a beginning of the word. It says it's a continuous, eternal present. This word appears four times in two verses, and it emphasizes the eternal nature of the word. The word never had a beginning and has no end. Before the creation of space, time, matter, energy, before the beginning began, the Word eternally is. There never was a time when He was not. Before the universe began, the Word, the second member of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, eternally existed. Now this verb, to be, the first time we see it in Scripture is when Moses is having a conversation with God at the burning bush. And Moses said, you want me to go back to the nation of Israel and tell them that you have set them free from Egypt and I'm supposed to lead them out? What do I say your name is? God says, I am who I am. I am who I am. That's the reference to eternally be. It literally means, quote, I am the one who is active, self-existent, and eternal. 
Jesus claimed to be eternal God. He said in John 8, 58, what? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's the name of God throughout the Old Testament. So, obviously, if you want to know, by the way, and Jesus ever says something significant, watch the reaction of the Pharisees. They picked up stones to try and kill him. That tells you that they understood that I am was the name of God, and Jesus Christ was claiming to be God when he said I am. Hebrews 13.8 talks about the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now this word, in the beginning was the word, this Greek word here is logos, L-O-G-O-S. For the Greeks, the word logos is the concept of divine reason that originated and directed all things. It was an impersonal, supreme, governing principle of the universe John's Jewish audience did not need a definition of the word word. The phrase, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, the word of God came to so-and-so, that appears 1,200 plus times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord was extremely well understood by his Jewish audience. In the Old Testament, whenever God revealed himself, it generally was through words. He revealed his thinking through words, through speaking. Genesis 1.3 said, then God said, God said what? Let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33.6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, for he spoke, and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. So God's very words contain the divine power to create the universe, ex nihilo, from nothing. So for the Jews, the word of the Lord was the revelation of God to people. But he uses the word logos, the word word, to communicate Christ both to the Greeks and to the Jews. You know, we often explain our thoughts through words, right? And a word reveals our invisible thoughts. It's an audible expression of our thinking, right? The eternal word, Jesus Christ, is a visible expression of the invisible God. So when it says Jesus is the Word of God, it means He is God's Alpha, He is God's Omega. He is God's Word from A to Z, from beginning to end. S.D. Gordon says, Jesus is God spelling Himself out in language that men can understand. I think that's very good. The fact is that Jesus is the Word of God demonstrates to us something very interesting. God wants to communicate with people. God wants to communicate with people, and Jesus is his communication. Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God's ultimate expression of himself is the infinite personal God-man, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything God wants to communicate to humanity about himself is in Jesus Christ. It says the word was with God. Prostantheon, it's a Greek. The eternal one was intimate with God, and it has the principle that with God being face-to-face, face-to-face with God, nose-to-nose, eye-to-eye, intimate with God, equal with God. And of course, this speaks to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity means, obviously, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in nature, one God in essence, three distinct and separate persons. Now, Scripture alludes to this in the very first chapter of Genesis. Genesis 1.26, and God said what? Let us make man in our image, which is plural, not singular. Wayne Grudem, his book on systematically theology, defines the Trinity as follows. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Think about that. The word trinity, triunity, triunity, three in oneness. 
God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are three distinct and separate persons. Throughout Scripture, you see them communicating with each other. You see them interacting with each other. The Father's talking to the Son. The Spirit is carrying out the will of the Son. They are three separate personalities who interact and communicate with each other. And each one of them is fully and completely God. Scripture refers to all three members of the Trinity as God throughout. If this was a sermon on the Trinity, I would bury you in Scripture. But just to give you an example, just before Jesus wrote, uh, ascended into heaven, he commanded the disciples a great commission, quote, baptize them, new believers, new Christians, what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? So God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one of those persons is fully God, and there is only one God. The Jewish Shema, Hebrews 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. God declares in Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. Now, Mathematically, you can try and explain this. The Trinity is not one plus one plus one is three. It is not one plus one plus one is three. There is not three gods. Mathematically, the Trinity is one times one times one equals one. Right? There is one God. Three and one, and yet only one. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, our finite minds cannot comprehend the fullness of this doctrine. We are finite, and he is infinite. But we are called to believe God's revelation about himself. He has revealed to us, he said, this is who I am. Believe it. And he's demonstrated that throughout Scripture that he keeps his promises and has intervened in human history. So God is clearly stating that the Word, the Son of God, is Jesus Christ, is separate from God the Father, is separate from the Holy Spirit, and yet Jesus is fully God, as is the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. The Word is both God and with God simultaneously. The Word was God, the Word was with God, eternally present tense. John 10.30 says, Jesus is talking, he says, I and my Father are one. Philip is having trouble, or is it Thomas? In the final discourse, says, show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, Read the Gospels. It is all in Jesus. If you want to see the Father, look at Jesus the Son. It illustrates the inextricable oneness of two separate persons, the Father and the Son. And then just to make sure you get it, the very end he says, the Word was God. This is a direct statement identifying the Word of God himself in essence and nature. The Word uh, it literally translates theosan on logos, which means God was the Word. God was eternally existent as the Word. Jesus is all that God is. There is nothing that God is that Jesus is not. There is nothing that Jesus is that God is not. Does that make sense? Satan deceives people on this issue more than any other issue because it's the crucial issue for your eternal destiny. If Jesus is not God come in the flesh, then Jesus died for his own sins only and not for yours. If Jesus is not God, then we are sinners without a Savior. And every cult, every religion on earth except for Christianity denies the deity of Christ because Satan knows that is the critical issue for your salvation. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is fully God, Colossians 2.9. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3, and he, Jesus, is the radiance of his, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. 
So Jesus is the exact substance, the exact essence is the Father. Not only is Jesus God, he's also creator. Let's look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Here's the principle. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things that exist. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things that exist. Now, positively, it says, all things came into being through him. Negatively, just in case you missed it, nothing came into being without him. Here's the central philosophic question of life. Why is there something rather than nothing at all? The answer to that is, in the beginning was the word. There cannot be an effect without a cause. Just in case you were wondering, the universe is a rather large effect. It is unimaginably complex, and it is ordered, and it is almost unimaginably large, and it demands a sufficient cause to explain. The universe creates a real problem for the atheist. A real problem, because they have no sufficient cause to explain its order, its diversity, its scale, its scope. It says, all things came into being through him. The beginning of the space-time, energy, material universe came into existence at the creation, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of everything that exists. He created creation. He began the beginning. Colossians 1.16 says what? For in him, by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authority all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, if Jesus Christ created all things, then clearly he can't be a created being. Many, many heresies claim that Jesus is not the Son of God. He was created by God. It's real clear Scripture disagrees with that statement uh, strongly. Apart from himself, Christ himself, everything that exists was created by him and is held together by him. See, we, we, we have a problem with origins. What's the origin of the physical universe? We have another part of the problem. How does this whole thing hang together? How does it continue to operate? Well, Scripture teaches that there's a continuous energy going into right here. It says all things are held together by him, which means his will is what keeps this thing from flying apart down to the atomic structures. We could spend another week on that. So it's also interesting that it says all things, including the invisible realm as well as the visible realm. So the earth, which you can see, and the material universe, which you can see with your eyes, and the entire invisible universe of the spiritual realm, all have been created by Jesus Christ for his glory, through his power, and he holds it all together at this point. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the author of spiritual life, and his power to save is stronger than the power of sin and Satan. Let me repeat that principle again. Jesus is the author of spiritual life, and his power to save is stronger than the power of sin and Satan. So Christ, the creator, is the source of physical life. Christ, the redeemer, is the source of spiritual life. We're talking about two kinds of life here. We are born into earthly life as biological babies. We are born again into eternal life when we receive the life of Christ at the moment of salvation. Interesting, it talks to both, but the Greek, the, the, the Greek here for life is not bios. Bios refers to physical life. It's zoe, which refers to spiritual life. So John is emphasizing the spiritual life dimension that Jesus Christ brings, not only the creator of the physical world, creator of spiritual life as well. Now, those who are spiritually dead in their sins, they're separated from God because of their sins. They need spiritual life, and Jesus Christ is the source of that life and that light. When he uses the word light, light clearly implies revelation by which we see that Christ is life. You know, you all 
at the moment of salvation or somewhere before then, at some point the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see the reality that Jesus was the Christ and that you were a sinner and you needed saving. If the Lord doesn't open our eyes, we're not going to see. Now, many people out there don't want to see. That's why they don't see. And God will not operate against your will. You have free will, and he honors that. So light implies revelation by which you see that Christ is the Son of God and you need salvation. Life actually denotes the salvation that occurs from deliverance from sin based on Christ's atonement and your acceptance of that by faith. John often uses words in contrast, and one of those here is John is using the word light and darkness, and he uses light and darkness frequently, darkness being the domain of sin and Satan and death and spiritual separation from God, light being the realm of God, being the realm of the Lord Jesus Christ, being the light of salvation and for God's children. Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 4.4 when he says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ as the image of God. And you have people in your life who are blinded, yes? And you can tell them about Jesus and no comprende. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to them. They look at you and they are puzzled how you could possibly believe this stuff. Right? Jesus is the solution to that spiritual blindness. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus opens our eyes, the spiritual light goes on, and we see that we are sinners, and we see that he is God in the flesh who has come to save us from our sins. John said, the darkness did not comprehend. Your, your passage might say did not overcome, did not understand. I'm not sure what your translation says there. But this word comprehend has two meanings. One, it means to overcome something in the sense of mastering it, power. And two, it means to grasp something mentally to understand it. So number one, did not comprehend it, did not overpower it and two, did not understand it. So both of those are accurate. The powers of darkness cannot overcome Jesus, right? The spiritual light of the world. People in darkness refuse the light of Jesus and do not understand him because they love their sin. Jesus said that in John 3. They reject the light because they love their sin and they refuse to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And you have family and friends in your life who will not come to the Savior because they love their sin and they don't want the light of the gospel to shine on that sin and make them feel guilty, so they just turn and run. So if someone does not want to hear about the gospel, understand that there's sin in their life they don't want to deal with. They love something in their life and they don't want to deal with it. And only the Holy Spirit can go around that and work through that and bring conviction to that, right? But it says they cannot extinguish the light of the gospel, even if they don't believe it. Sinners crucified Christ, your sin and my sin. But we did not overcome the light because he rose from the dead. He conquered sin, Satan, death, demons, in order to give eternal life to those who believe in him. 1 John 5.11 says what? And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Eternal life is far more than just quantity of life. A lot of times I think we think about eternal life and we go, man, that's a long time. Actually, it's beyond time. Eternity is outside time. Eternal life is a number of things. It is a different quality of life as well as a never-ending quantity of life. Christ called it abundant life. He came that I might give you abundant life, right? It's quality life here and now on planet Earth, which means 
Those who know Christ as their Savior and Lord are experiencing eternal life now in the flesh here on planet Earth today. You do not have to die to experience eternal life. Salvation came to you at the moment of salvation. The life of Christ came to you at the moment of salvation. God, the Holy Spirit, came to live in you at the moment of salvation. You are experiencing eternal life with the power of God in you today, here, and now. It doesn't mean you're free from sin. That's coming, glorification. But you have the power of God, and you have eternal life today, forever, in heaven as well. Christ's life is what gives light to everyone, and light overcomes darkness. The smallest candle, by the way, pierces the darkness, any darkness, and can be seen from a great distance. In World War II, in London, they used mandated blackout curtains, or you extinguished every light, because you could see a tiny candle 8,000 feet up, German bombers could see it, and that's where they'd bomb. They'd bomb on the light. So it doesn't take virtually no light to be seen at a distance at night. Light always overcomes darkness. That's the metaphor he's using you here. Okay, now we come to the main part, now that you're warmed up in verse 14. This is probably the most profound passage of Scripture uh, in Scripture. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the principle. Jesus Christ is fully God and also became fully human when he took on flesh and lived on earth with us. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is fully God and also became fully human when he took on flesh and lived on earth with us. This is the most amazing miracle in in Scripture. Eternal God joins himself to human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man. Now, when it says the Word became flesh, it's, we're not talking about the origin of Christ's existence. He has, he's lived forever. He's always existed in eternity. They're talking about the incarnation, in carcass, in flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus began his human experience in Bethlehem. He never had a beginning eternally. He's always existed. So he went from being fully God and dwelling in heaven to taking on perfect humanity while retaining full deity at the same time and dwelling on earth. You know, when you ask a typical evangelical, was Christ God or man? They say, well, he was God, of course. You ask a typical liberal, was was Jesus human or God? Well, he was human, of course. Right, he was both. He is the only unique God-man. And he will be both fully God and fully human in one person for all eternity. The Church Council at Chalcedon in 451 summarized this. They said, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, united in one person forever without confusion to his two natures. Now, how this occurred is a holy mystery. Literally. There are many things in Scripture that are holy mysteries. We will not understand, and we may not understand in glory. You won't be asking the question because you'll be face to face. What is amazing is the Creator at the Incarnation became part of His creation. The Eternal One enters into the limitations of space and time. The infinite God took on the finite limitations of humanity, a baby. The invisible God becomes visible in human form. Satan was really excited about that because now he thought he was killable, right? And the sinless one comes to bear the sins of the world. The incarnation is the most it's the most profound thing you can say about Jesus Christ, that he is the God-man. How that occurred is hinted at. Why it occurred is love, John 3.16. But let's take a look at Philippians 2.5. Paul is actually talking about humility, and he uses Christ as an illustration. So this is an illustration of humility, but it reveals the incarnation, Christ becoming flesh. Quote, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, hung onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. Now, the, the key word here is kenosis. It's the word emptied himself. So when you talk about emptied himself, it is, the Greek is kenosis. It means the self-emptying. Christ, when he became flesh, voluntarily laid aside many of the prerogatives he had in heaven. He laid aside some of the use of some of the divine attributes. He didn't lay aside his deity. People say, well, when Christ became human, he was no longer God. That's not true. He always was fully God. He took on full, perfect humanity without sin, so he was perfectly God and perfectly and completely man, both at the same time. He chose to leave heaven in order to be born on earth in Bethlehem. I've wondered, what were the angels thinking when the Son of God disappeared from heaven? And there he is on earth as a baby. Wow. God, who is everywhere present, now becomes local in a body. Now, that's a rather significant limitation, right? We have no idea the price tag it costs the Son to come from perfect heaven where he's worshipped by angels to come down to here where he's crucified as a common criminal and a murderer by people who hated him, and he's the one that came to save them. As fully human, he knew hunger, thirst, weakness, fatigue, temptation, and even death. Fully human, without sin. He humbled himself, Paul says, by becoming the lowest slave, doulos, and he obeyed his father by dying for the sins of the world as a common criminal, even though he was completely innocent. And as a result of that, today, this God-man, the one and only God-man, is exalted and sits at the right hand of his heavenly father. So there is a man in heaven right now, the only God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will be forever identified with humans and forever identified with God. And that's why he can bridge the gap between God and us, because he is both God and human. The word dwelt here, skinu, it literally means to tabernacle. It means to pitch a tent. It means to live in a tent. And the word tabernacle or tent, it, it means a temporary dwelling place. So it says, and, and, and Christ temporarily dwelt among us. Well, how long did he live on earth? 33 years. He was here temporarily the first time. Christ's name we sang about in the prior service is Emmanuel. Profound name. What does it mean? God with us. God with us. Revelation 20 and 21. Here's the great news. After his resurrection, Christ permanently indwells us through the Holy Spirit. Permanently. It's not a temporary. You have the Holy Spirit throughout eternity, right? And we will live forever with him in heaven. So it was temporary the first time. It's permanent going forward, and we live with that blessing. And John says, we saw his glory. Now, God's glory, of course, is the summation of his perfections. It's the visible attributes of God made public. It's usually seen as bright, brilliant light. In the Old Testament, it was a kind of glory cloud. In the New Testament, God's glory is revealed through Jesus Christ, right? He is the dwelling place of God's glory. And we saw that in the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John saw this brilliant, bright light as they saw him in his glorified state. John also will tell us that he revealed his glory through his miracles. He revealed the glory of God and the power of God when he did miracles. It says, glory is of the only begotten of the Father. This phrase has been misused a lot. People say, well, it says he's begotten. That means he was born. No, it doesn't refer to his origin. It refers to his uniqueness. You could translate this, Glory as of the one and only. One and only. He is uniquely one and only Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. He's co-equal with God. We become children of God through what? Adoption. Adoption at the new birth. He is co-equal with God and has always existed as the one and only Son of God. Correct? Full of grace and truth. If you want to see the grace of God in full display, what do you look at? You look at the cross. You look at the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. 
Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. At the cross, Christ took what we deserve, death, and gave us what we don't deserve, life. Reconciliation. As we believe the truth that Christ died for our sins, we can experience what? God's grace and forgiveness. So John, in this beginning prologue, and we've barely begun to scratch the surface, he tells us who Jesus is, and his emphasis is the dual, the single God, eternal, divine nature, co-equal with the Father, no beginning, and yet that divine, eternal, forever eternal God chose, because of love, to take on human flesh and took on perfect humanity and came to earth because he loved us enough to redeem us by paying the penalty for our sins in his own person. It leaves you speechless. Okay, let's review. One, the facts about Jesus lead us to faith in Jesus so that we may have an eternal loving relationship with the Lord. Two, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is God. Third principle. Jesus is the creator of all things that exist. Number four, Jesus is the author of spiritual life, and his power to save is stronger than the power of sin and Satan. You've got some people in your life you need to pray that over. And fifthly, Jesus Christ is fully God and also became fully human when he took on flesh and lived on earth with us. One of the outcomes of this is Hebrew tells us we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who does not understand our weaknesses. This week, you're going to run into weaknesses and trials and troubles and disappointment and temptation, and you have experienced nothing that Jesus Christ has not experienced. So you can come to him with full confidence that your high priest in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, understands your brokenness because he walked planet earth with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Amen? Amen. Love you all. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.